is Thursday, September 5th, and welcome to the season premiere of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. It's great to be back. I've really missed doing the show. It's been, I think, close to three months since I've done an official episode. I did a little mini episode last week, kind of talking about what I've been up to since I went on break back in May. But for those who might be listening to the show for the very first time, my name is Derek Diamond. I am the host of this show. I've been hosting it since March of 2014. And I started doing the podcast initially as a way to overcome some of my social anxieties. And it started as a variety show. You know, I would interview musicians, authors, artists, really anybody that I thought would have an interesting story. I wanted to bring them on the podcast so they'd have a platform to tell it. Well, in the summer of 2018, it was becoming kind of stagnant and I was getting really burnt out almost to the point of not really wanting to do it anymore. And then someone gave me the idea of, you know, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a filmmaker. And he said, make your podcast about filmmaking. So I made the decision in January of 2019 to shift focus of the podcast to talk solely with those who work in the world of film and television and get their stories and really kind of add an educational aspect to it. And that's something that I hope to do uh, now that I'm back from summer break. I want to add that educational aspect to the podcast. I I want this to be kind of a go-to platform if someone wants to learn about how to be an actor or how to be a screenwriter or how to submit your film to festivals. This can be a platform to do that because that's one of the initial reasons as well as to why I switched the format is so I could learn. And back at the end of last year, I wrote and directed my very first short film, The Parker Syndrome. But I'm still wanting to learn more and I'm excited for the journey that this podcast has been going on since January, and now that it's back, there's even more exciting stuff planned that I can't wait for you guys to hear over the next several weeks and months to come. But as far as today's show goes, um, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode because it's with two friends of mine and two of my first ever podcast guests, and those would be fellow filmmakers Carrie Hunter and Austin Herman. Funny enough, Austin, I think, was one of my first five guests. I think he might have been on episode four or five, which dates all the way back to the spring of 2014, so over five years ago. And then Carrie appeared not too long after that, definitely within the first six months of the show's existence. So it was great having them back on. They just finished wrapping uh, this really inspiring and really interesting documentary called Blue Tarps, This is over six months after Hurricane Michael. They actually went to the Panama City area, more specifically in the rural area, and got to hear so many stories about people who still struggle with life after Hurricane Michael. Because even though it was over six months ago, people still struggle with what they've lost. Some people have lost everything. They lost their home, lost friends, lost family members. You name it. And I'm really interested in seeing this documentary, and they're going to be doing a pre-screening of it in just a couple of weeks, but I will let them tell you that information. And they talk about what inspired them to make this documentary, some of the emotional impacts that the stories they heard have on them, and really what became more fascinating about the film itself than what they might have initially thought. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the directors and producers of Blue Tarps, Carrie Hunter and Austin Herman. 
Happy to be joined this week by the producers and directors of the upcoming documentary Blue Tarps, Carrie Hunter and Austin Herman. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. Doing great. How are you doing? Good, good. Now, as we were talking, you know, right before we started, this is kind of a, a new setup for me. And, you know, I've told my listeners about the nightmares of Skype and the issues that it causes. So uh, hopefully this will be a much better listening experience than, you know, past episodes of mine. So uh, it's really cool. But I wanted to, to dive right into this documentary that you guys did and kind of start from the very beginning um, how did you guys meet initially? Because I know you guys have worked on, you know, other projects together and have been doing so for a while. So how did you guys initially meet? And then how did you come up with the idea to to do this documentary? Okay. Austin, do you want to, <laughs> we're going to have to, because uh, we're, we're both on different phone lines. We're going to have to figure uh, out uh, who's going to speak first. Oh, um, go ahead. But... Uh, Austin and I first met um, because of the Emerald Coast Film Group. Um, me and some friends started a networking group years and years ago in the Pensacola, Fort Walton, Destin area. And Austin ended up contacting me. And we actually ended up going and getting coffee and just like really hit it off. Uh, we just like have a lot in common in the types of movies that we like and um the the style the way we do things and kind of the way we think um kind of meshes well together so we've made a lot of projects over the past few years and we were actually working on another documentary um that is we we haven't quite finished that one yet but it was about the history of air conditioning being developed in florida and we had to go down to Apalachicola, and on the way down there, we realized how badly torn up Panama City was. And the whole area leading down from I-10, it wasn't just along the coast. It was super far inland. Um, and we ended up talking to a bunch of local people while working on this other film. And it just kind of hit us that, like, nobody seems to be paying attention to the fact that the area is still struggling so badly. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna back that up too, because I remember we, you know, we actually it was like a one of those things we made a decision to take the quote unquote scenic route on the way back from Apalachicola. And I remember just going through Port St. Joe and Panama City, and we drove by Tyndall and all that, and it really, as I described it to her, it looked like Godzilla had just walked through there like yesterday. And this was back, I think, in April. So, and you know, we started shooting documentary at the end of April, like, you know, because it kind of developed that quickly. That's crazy. No, it's I remember that being a big deal for a brief period of time. And it was even mentioned in, you know, one of the clips that's on your guys Facebook page is that Hurricane Michael was almost forgotten about not too long after it happened. I remember it was supposed to hit you know, more along in, in our area in Pensacola. And then it, you know, took a last minute turn and hit, you know, right for uh, the Panama City area. And I, I was even there back in in March. And you know, to back up what you guys were saying, you could still see areas that were just completely devastated by it. It reminded me of Katrina from years ago when I went to New Orleans, you know, six to eight months after Katrina hit, and you could still see the devastation from it. So it, it's pretty wild to, to see and um, go through the process of, you know, once you guys had the idea that you wanted to to do a story about the aftermath of Hurricane Michael and how it impacted people. 
what was the process that you guys went through as far as you know finding people to that would be willing to share their story and you know kind kind of walk me through that um so we we basically started with social media um we we had talked to a few people um down in the area while we were um filming this other documentary but i started posting um on our film group and also um on some of the arts groups and stuff like that and um you know this was almost six months after well actually it was pretty much exactly six months after the storm had hit um and it was it was like the day before the news actually covered the fact that it, it had been upgraded uh, to a category five as far as the, the records of it. Um, and we had a post that basically started going crazy all over the place of of people sharing that we were going to do this film. And I started getting messages from people from all over the place that had different stories and we weren't even able to go and talk to like a, a small fraction of the people that contacted us just because we didn't have enough time and resources but we kind of found common themes of things that people said over and over and over again that they were running into so we kind of were looking for people that epitomized some of the different problems um, so one of the things that we ran into is that there were still families six months out of, after the storm that were living in tents. And especially in rural areas, it's almost like Panama City was forgotten, but like the rural areas, nobody ever paid attention in the first place. And this is literally one of the poorest areas of Florida. And I almost feel like in some ways that made this issue worse because if it had hit a more populated area, there would have been more coverage of it. But because it was one of the poorest areas and also one of the, you know, least populated, there's not a whole, there's not a critical mass of people to create an outcry. So, yeah, they, there were several issues that we kind of saw over and over again. And then we went through all the stories and tried to find the people that seemed to epitomize that issue so uh, th there were so many people that contacted us that it was actually really difficult to try to pick and choose who we were gonna go in and film and showcase i thought I, i'm gonna back that up it was incredibly huge amount of responses and even while we were shooting we would get done shooting during the day multiple interviews of different locations and that night go home look at the messages and i, I mean it was i don't want to say almost like in the hundreds like on a constant basis it was pretty pretty uh pretty impressive it, it was hard to keep track of it i had a a spreadsheet where i i had it um divided by city and by the type of issue um and then had everybody's stories and contact information um and it was actually like a massive organizational challenge and then after we actually filmed the editing of it became another massive organizational challenge because we filmed so many stories and so much footage that it was actually um kind of hard to 
fit everything. And there were certain things that unfortunately got left on the cutting room floor just because, you know, you can't make a six hour documentary that people are actually going to want to watch. So that's been uh, an interesting thing. No, that was also part of the creative challenge. Like, what did we want to make? And the decision was made. I think before we were shooting, this is going to be a film. There's, you know, this is going to be a one-time documentary. We can always mm-hmm. release things otherwise. And and even some of the interviewees, we filmed everything. Certain things like the the uh, the, adopt, the pet adoption center and things like that. That was always kind of intended. Like this is just showing you know we're showing just what's going on. It may not be in the final film, but this is going to be there just to give people yeah. a taste of what's going on. Well, that's the good thing about you know Facebook and other forms of social media is that if there are any clips that you guys have that ultimately don't fit into the overall scope of the story you're trying to tell you can still say hey this is you know like the pet adoption you said you can just post that clip on facebook and people have access to watch it because i I looked at you know all the clips that were on the facebook page and a lot of views on it and i think it's because it's such a a big story that hasn't really been talked about in a while and that was something that i wanted to ask too is that you through through doing this, you know, I know you guys had the aspect of making a film about this story, but were there any stories that you guys heard that, you know, kind of had an emotional impact on you? Um, the, there were several times while we were filming that I was like basically fighting back tears. And I I think Austin saw a lot of this. I, I tended to do a lot of the interviews and Austin did a lot of the camera work um we 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 split up our our work when we go out to shoot so that we can both kind of compartmentalize um the i guess the emotional process of it um but with talking to people um there were so many situations where like there was nothing i could really do to help um and they were going through really like horrible things so one of the probably the worst was an elderly couple um, that are featured um, in the film, Larry and Rosie. Um, they were living in a trailer that had a hole in the roof and didn't have electricity. And they were having to run an air conditioner on a generator that volunteers were basically coming in refilling with gasoline every few hours. And the local nonprofits had repeatedly tried to get them a female FEMA trailer, tried to get electricity hooked up and like just nothing seemed to be working to get them in a better situation. And the problem was, is that Rosie was a severe diabetic and, you know, she doesn't have a refrigerator, so she can't keep fresh food. So like they're eating processed stuff, which is making her health worse and her diabetes worse. And if they don't keep the air conditioner going, she'll get overheated. And, you know, basically they said that if they couldn't keep her cool, that she would probably die. Wow. So, like, the volunteers were coming like clockwork um, to try to refill the gas. So this is six months after the storm. And they actually weren't able to get them out of that situation until almost nine months out after the storm. It was July 31st and the storm happened October 10th. So that's how long after. And, you know, you're meeting these good people that, you know, they, they worked their entire lives. They're 
very kind. They will they welcome you into your their home. All they want to talk about is how much they love their grandchildren. They're very, you know, religious people that believe that, you know, God is going to come through and help. And in some ways, um, he did because it was actually the local Baptist church that was eventually able to get them a trailer. But this was months of asking FEMA for help, of trying to get the resources together to help these people and like just genuinely good people. And I mean, you know, you're looking at this, this older woman and older gentleman and, you know, uh, these people look like your grandparents, like they're, and it just feels so wrong. And you're, you're like genuinely concerned that something bad's going to happen to them if, that generator doesn't get enough gas today or if it breaks down so that one to me that particular story just was gut-wrenching and then after we filmed it it took I mean it was another three months before they got out of that situation and I mean they're still not in a great situation they're still in a in a camper trailer but at least it has electricity um there's a nonprofit that's trying to build them a new home but I mean, like it, it just, it hurts. You, you feel for these people, you hurt for them and you know, you don't really know what to do. I found the uh, situation pretty fascinating too, just from like a socioeconomic perspective. You know, when you're in Panama city, they're talking about FEMA, they're talking about the roofs and all that and houses and rebuilding, but there's generally something being done inch by inch. When you get out into Jackson County, Calhoun County, Mariana. It's like these people haven't. We go to people's houses and there's like, oh, yeah, FEMA said my house wasn't damaged enough. And these people have, you know, like they've tied bed sheets along their ceiling and put nails in them because when it rains, it rains in the house, you know, things like that. And they're just, again, it's just by being out there, like the farther you go out there, the more farther and harder it is to get any kind of resource. And, but one of the more uh, kind of most positive things, like, again, you talk about like Chipotle Baptist Ministries, Innovative Charities, these people we met out there in these counties who are like on the ground level they're doing things for people because yes it's yeah. going to take fema's backlog government aids backlog but on the day-to-day ground level what people need today the churches and local organizations are doing the best they can obviously it's more than they can handle but they're doing what they can um in terms of stories that i really appreciated we did follow a family in Panama city a woman named stephanie she had three kids and lived with her husband and their parents they're condo hopping and it's one thing that happens, we figure that, you know, happened here during Ivan, you know, when your house is damaged, like there's a small, small amount of aid being given where you have to like live out of your home and go condo hopping, condo hopping, condo hopping. And I found it fascinating just from the sense of like, you know, you meet these people and they're in a very fragile state. You know, obviously they've been through a lot. Even when you're talking to them, they're, they're, you're talking to them in like their homes that all these memories happen. And it's just destroyed. They're not living with AC. Every day is a challenge, but yet here's this mom or husband and their kids and still taking them to karate, still taking them to gymnastics, still taking them to dance, still just going out there and doing it, living your life with a smile on your face, just going out there and doing it and staying positive about it. I found that just incredibly like, wow, like, could I handle it that well, you know, if I was in that situation? But I just found it just very heartwarming on that. People had an incredible sense of humor about what was going on. <laughs> like, it, it was funny because uh, – one of the one of the women that was uh, not in Mariana, but uh, I think it was more over toward Grand Ridge. Um, 
she, you know, she welcomed us in with a smile on her face and like was offering to get us a cold beverage and like, you know, and then she's showing us basically the holes in her roof that every time it rains, the water comes in. But, you know, she was laughing and smiling and very, um, she, she had almost a, a sense of, of joy to be alive and to be there in spite of how hard life was for her because she still had her family. She still had her sons and, you know, they, they had survived the storm. So there was almost this sense of like, we're going to be okay. We're going to rebuild. It's just going to be tough for a while. And that was kind of refreshing. Well, I feel like, and to follow up on what you said, Austin, about the family that, you know, would still do karate and do gymnastics and all that stuff. I feel like in that situation, you, have to have some type of hobby to take your mind off what's going on otherwise you would just completely go insane because of all the the negativity that's that's just happened to you and the fact that you know people can still maintain a positive attitude towards you guys and to other people it's kind of inspiring when you think about it because and it kind of puts things in perspective you know we'll complain about some type of mundane thing that might happen or something that might not necessarily go our way and then you're in that type of situation and you think, well, maybe I don't have it so bad after all. It's it's definitely the truth there. Like and even when we were editing and developing and shooting, like just, you know, when, you, when you're shooting, it's it can be pretty rough, you know, because they only have a sense of humor. It's like you're you're in this situation with them and like you see, like it, it's it's there was a lot of sad stories. But um, you know, as you try to form this the narrative of the documentary, what comes through is just that overall like gonna rebuild it's gonna be fine gonna keep going you know it's the human spirit it's how they handle it's what they do and uh again with the hobby thing and one thing that did come up a lot was depression uh we uh, asked everybody about it it did come up a lot um we even uh interviewed a local uh educational person about it uh in mariana and one thing too uh psychologist he worked as a um, professor at chipola college and on top of that, like um, one thing that came up too, um, we talked to one person, Heather, a local artist. Um, what did to the trees? You know, something like Panama City. You, know, you forget, like even here, it happened here for Ivan. You know, when something that big hits, all those you know trees and canopies and the woods, like it just goes away. And all of a sudden, you see parts of the sky that weren't there before. Like, if it, and it was a constant trend. Like, yeah, you know, where you go, like trees are knocked down. Like, you don't have the canopies anymore. Parks are ruined. Like, you know, it was a constant about what it did to the community and like you know keeping your head up and stuff like that and again some people handle it better than others yeah um we were actually that this artist that we filmed with for a while uh heather um we were actually filming a, a promo video for her artwork the day before the storm and we weren't really i guess paying that much attention to the storm coming in we knew there was a storm coming but we didn't realize how bad it was going to be so we actually were in the area in this like very shaded, beautiful part of Panama City the day before the storm. And when we came back, we needed a GPS to recognize the house and the yard because it had it had gone from being this shaded, lush, I guess, grove to almost feeling like a desert island. Like there was there none of the trees were left and like none, a lot of the landmarks that we had used to get there the first time were gone and 
we actually like I drove by the house the second time we visited um, because I didn't recognize it. It was that different. That's and, all that's left of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and it was it was so strange to have been there the day before the storm, and then you come back six months later, and you know, even the people that live there talked about how they were having to use um, their their iPhones to find places because all of the landmarks are gone. Like mm-hmm. the, there's literally empty parking lots with a slab um, where, where the local store or, or a house or, or whatever you were using to navigate by visually um, they're, they're just gone. So it, it kind of almost feels like a mind game while you're driving around Panama city. Oh, I mean, sure. especially like I, I've lived in this area my whole life. I spent a lot of time down in Panama City as a kid. And like it, it just feels like you're in an alternate universe. I remember thinking the same thing after Ivan hit here. You know, you recognize it as one thing. And then in the span of several hours, it looks completely different. Yeah. And, and Ivan took uh, a long time to recover from. Um, Ivan was a hurricane three, uh, hurricane Michael was actually a hurricane five. Um, you look at this compared to other storms along the Gulf coast. And we've actually had a lot of people kind of, uh, bashing us as like, Oh, like hurricanes happen. Like, why is this important? And part of the, the theme of the film is really about the nature of hurricanes in general, like how people recover, but there are certain things about each storm, like each storm almost has a personality. And, um, you know, Katrina was a very different storm than Hurricane Michael. And like whether or not it's more of a wind-based versus a flooding-based storm. um, And also like how dense the population is for wherever the storm hits. dramatically changes the human story of it. Um, and I think that that's really one of the things that's so fascinating here is, is the human element. It's not just the, the scale of the, the destruction. Um, it's how, how the people themselves kind of deal with it. And there are things that are, are definitely, um, relatable for any storm, but, I think one of the things to keep in mind with the storm is that it is one of the most powerful storms that's ever hit Florida and it hit a rural area and one of the poorest areas of the country. And that caused it to be more likely to be forgotten than a hurricane three that hits a highly populated area that a weaker storm can actually get more attention based on just the number of people in its path. So it it makes things very difficult when you're talking about recovery. Yeah. No, I I totally agree with that. Uh, it, it's kind of like that old saying that I heard and you know, I when I first was made aware of the documentary and was reading about it and you breaking up the comment of you know, being bashed for making a documentary about storms. It's really it's not about the storm, it's about the fallout, because it's like that old saying that I've heard a long time ago that I kind of live by, that life is 10% what happens to you, and 
the rest of it is how you react to it. And this yeah. is about the reaction. Yeah. Also, Floridians, like, even the people we interviewed taught this time, it's like, we don't have this mindset about hurricanes. We don't take it seriously. We don't take it. We, we're, we're Floridians. We all get, we get hit by like three hurricanes a year, you know? And even when we were going down there the day before the storm, it's funny, Carrie mentioned that because I completely forgot that fact. We were down there shooting that promo art video. I remember, like, we had a hard time getting gas. Everybody's getting gas, and that was a nuisance. <laughs> you know, and, we, and then when we got down there, I remember, like, when we left, it's, you know, Heather was even talking about what she was going to do. And, well, I might hit here. We'll find out, you know, because, like, it was one of the storms, too. It just happened like that. You know, a lot of times, you know, we sometimes, again, when it comes to personality of storms, like, you kind of have a good sense of where it's going or not. And yeah. it just, it sat in the golf and just formed so quickly. It turned in from like a two to like a five, just like that. And I remember we were the night, like when we were leaving Panama City, we were eating at this restaurant and they were boarding up the windows and we were just, you know, we didn't really think anything of it. You know, <laughs> we're just like, oh, you know, it's another storm. We're going to head back to Vince Cole. We'll be fine. You know, we're not, you know, it's a cat we too, were, right? When we were, we were in no rush to get out and like in retrospect, it just, but we, we thought it was going to, the last we had heard it was cat too. And I mean, I, one of the one of the women says it in the film and I I kind of feel the same way like when it's cat too we just don't take it seriously so <laughs> yeah I mean it's true yeah it just seems it seems so crazy in retrospect but like and I think that's one of the reasons this story meant so much to us is that we were kind of even though we don't live in Panama City we live over in Pensacola or I used to, Austin still lives there. I'm in Atlanta now, but we're from Pensacola, but we kind of were totally on the same page and we felt like this could have just as easily been Pensacola as Panama city. And it just, I I think for, for me, at least it was a little bit of a shock that it was as bad as it was because of the warnings coming up to it. Normally when I've seen really bad hurricanes, like we kind of knew Katrina was going to be a nightmare and mm-hmm. you know we we knew Ivan was going to be a nightmare I remember the lead up to Ivan um I was a teenager at the time and I remember there being a massive lead up to that where we kind of like had a heads up and you know this this felt like it kind of came out of nowhere yeah no I, I remember that being a big thing was that you know it 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 took that last minute turn east because that, that could have very well been Pensacola. Yeah. I keep, uh, I keep telling people in Pensacola, like, you know, there are still people and still organizations over in Mariana that still need help. They still need donations. They're trying to re- rebuild people's houses. And I keep reminding people in Pensacola, even though it's not Pensacola that was hit, this, you know, this next time it could be us. And it's almost, we really need to make an effort to take care of each other in Northwest Florida and really along the entire Gulf Coast, because at some point, all of us are going to be affected by these storms. And it seems like a lot of the storms are getting, I guess, worse and worse. Um, and the last couple of years, the Gulf of Mexico has been way warmer. Like the temperature of the water has been way warmer and that in turn makes the storm stronger. So, I mean, if you live in Florida, it's a matter of time until you're going to be affected by something similar. And that's why it really is important that when something like this happens, that if you have the ability to do something to help people, 
um, you really should because you don't know if the next storm it's going to be you. No, you're absolutely right. Which that's actually a good lead into my next question is what do you what's your guys' goal with with your Blue Tarps documentary? What 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 type of impact do you think or hope that it will have? So in the immediate uh, future, we are doing a screening on September 15th uh, at Sudson Cinema in Fort Walton, um, and it's going to be at 1 p.m. We are doing a small fundraiser to help a charity group that is still working with hurricane victims in the Mariana area. We felt that the rural areas of um, Jackson and Calhoun County are some of the most ignored and innovative charities is uh, in rebuild Northwest Florida. They're kind of like the highly connected to each other, but innovative charities is still helping to feed people. It's helping retard people's homes. Um, we're trying to do a small fundraiser to um, help them with their work. And they said that anything that is donated um, will go directly to rebuilding so that they're not taking any overhead costs. And the uh, Suds and Cinema has been so kind. Um, they have pledged to donate proceeds like profits from the concession sales to innovative charities. Plus we're um, going to be taking up donations. The actual admission is free. We want people to come even if they can't afford to come. Um, but if you have a few dollars to spare, uh, we are going to be doing that. Um, the longer term um, goal is to get people to recognize that each one of these storms has real human beings that are trying like this is not people just sitting around waiting for help these are people that are actively trying to recover but really do need help like uh, most of the people that we talked to that were in the worst situations were elderly or they were disabled and then we met a few young people with with children, but you didn't see a whole lot of people between, I guess, the ages of, of 25 and 40 that were in extremely desperate situations. You saw them struggling, but the people that were in the most desperate situations, the ones that were living in tents, um, you know, a lot of those people are, are really trying and, and, you know, it, if you're, 65 years old the truth is you know there, there's a limit to what you can do physically um to rebuild your own home um so i i think that for me i would like to i guess inspire people to when these storms come which they will um to remember the human element of this and i also think at some point our country is going to have to really re-examine how FEMA works. And we didn't really do, and this is a human interest piece. It's more focused on the people and the human aspect of it. We didn't do an investigative film. This is not a, a, um, calling FEMA to the, to the car, onto the carpet, you know, but there are problems with FEMA in every single storm. There are problems with the insurance companies in every single storm. 
And at a certain point, we really need to address these problems. Like, why is it taking insurance companies a year to pay out? And in the meantime, families are, you know, stuck either living in a a damaged home or a tent. Like, that should not be happening. And FEMA, you know, had trailers that they were selling at auction in Texas for almost nothing. And in the meantime, there are people that were living in tents in Northwest Florida. Why did we not try to get those trailers over to Florida somehow? Like there's so many things that seem to be inconsistencies and inefficiencies in FEMA that really need to be addressed at some point. And I think that we need to be aware and at some point have some sort of a public outcry over it. And in a lot of ways, too, the movie, I feel, plays almost like it's a warning. Um, you look at this kind of situation with this town, you know, somewhere like maybe in New Orleans and Pensacola and things like that, maybe have more, a better economy, maybe have just more people, regardless, like what I know is like, okay, you take a city like, you know, Bay County, um, one of, let's just throw a fun fact out there. Uh, the, the hospital is destroyed or it has so much damage, they have to lay off jobs. So you lay off 200, 600, some odd jobs. Those are 200 people with incomes and families that are now leaving the city. So when they leave the city, guess what else we found out? Then you found out. The educational population, the amount of kids in schools diminish. When that diminishes, teachers diminish. When that diminishes, less funding. And this is a constant trend. It was a constant snowball that we saw all over the area. This is the town. You know, it's almost like a, like on that Michael Moore documentary about Flint, Michigan. It's like these towns, and, and these towns are in better condition than that. But you know, when when communities are on the the, the fringe or on the cusp, or even just a moderate community, something like this hits them, and it's just it just knocks them right down. You know what I mean? And it's just so hard to get them back up again because of these issues. Again, how she mentions uh, very few people between 20 and 45. Again, when a lot of elderly people or young kids, and we heard this other startling fact that a lot of the kids are living with grandma, quote unquote. You know, like the people are just displaced, no homes. And again, people are leaving the city, and the city, that happens. The economy suffering, and the economy suffering. No one's going to help. You know, they can't help themselves. It's just something that kept. It's just a constant trend of just they're just hanging on. You know, that was kind of disheartening. That was that was pretty alarming to me and that's why like it's almost like you know when things like this happen we need to be prepared we need to know and even communities before house you need like that's why you can't have communities suffering like like we have to you know look out for each other you know because when things like this happen it just knocks them right down you know and it just you can't have it and the funny thing in in panama city and in mariana what happened six months after the storm um the lower wage jobs actually started having very difficult time finding workers because the people that were paid the least in Panama city couldn't afford to rebuild. Like we've had over a decade of what's ostensibly been a recession. So people's people's spare income is already gone. And then we've been paying people, you know, $8 an hour to you know work work at the restaurants to clean hotels uh to work at the local walmart and then something like this happens and it severely damages people's homes it wipes out the rental properties and massive numbers of people just picked up and left like i'm they they literally just got in their cars and went and a lot of people have moved to jacksonville a lot of people have moved to pensacola and a large number of people have moved down to orlando and now, these people that have businesses in Panama City 
can't get employees and they're complaining about it. But it's like at a certain point, if you're not going to put a priority on building housing that the guy that is is frying the the shrimp at the local tourist restaurant can actually afford, you know, this is what happens if you put people on the edge and then on top of it, refuse to assist them. They're they're going to vote with their feet. They're going to walk out. So a lot of these business owners in Panama City are having to do a lot of manual, uh, I guess, what most people consider menial labor jobs themselves and having to work, you know, 18 hour days. And it's just kind of like, you know, you guys didn't see this coming. Like people have to have a place to live. They're not going to keep living in tents and cleaning hotel rooms. And, and one funny fact, too, I think uh, when we were in Calhoun or <clears throat> uh, Mariana, they mentioned about the Walmart, like during the, their periods, like months after the storm, where they, like, it can like these you know, Walmart gift cards go a long way in helping these people but in terms of donate, donations. So they can go and get their gas and get their propane and get their whatever they need. And I think one of the, I think Megan Rodder was telling us, you know, for a couple months there, like the Walmart couldn't get employees. They couldn't be open all night. And if you yeah. can't and like in a community like this, like in that rural community, they depend on a Walmart, like water, milk. Similac, you know, all this stuff, and they're not open all the time because if we don't have employees, we can't be open 24 hours. That's just, again, it's another hit. It's another hit that's going to knock these people down. And there there were areas, um, you know, Panama City lost its hospital, but Calhoun County's hospital also got severely damaged, and that's pretty much the main hospital for the rural area. And then on top of it, there were a bunch of grocery stores that got damaged in these little towns that they only have one grocery store. So Greenwood, Florida, which is north of Mariana, um, the last I heard, they had still not rebuilt their grocery store. So this gets into um, there. There's a technical term for it called food deserts. It's basically places where people can not get access to groceries. So the people of Greenwood, Florida, are having to drive 20, 30 minutes to that Walmart that is only now open part of the time. And I mean, this is this is affecting everybody. Like even even if you have more resources, there's a certain point when, you know, if your local grocery store is not open and it's a major trek to get you know, groceries and your prescriptions refilled. And these are already areas that tend to be people that are 60 years old or older. Um, I mean, it's massively life-changing. It's like a domino effect. When one thing happens, it just affects so many other things around it that you may not even really think about. One of the cotton gin guys said the exact same thing. We interviewed some people in the tin industry and the cotton gin industry, and they just talked about that. And that's another issue, again, like the farmers, how I did to the farmers. So again, Calhoun's so rural and uh, Mariana as well. And yeah, he's like, yeah, it's a domino effect, you know? Like, can, can we go? I mean, it, it gets pretty, we, we dive into the socioeconomics in the documentary. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting parts of the film, and I think it, it wasn't something that I was expecting. Um, I, I expected our our economic, like looking at the uh, the industry to be kind of an aside. And um, it actually ended up being one of the most fascinating parts of the film, um, a look at the destruction of crops and already like this, again, 
is a group of people that are kind of struggling already because there's a there's a set of things going on in the U.S. right now that I think people aren't aware of of very high interest rates on farmers loans. Um, and then in addition to it, we have a foreign company uh, named Bayer. It's actually a German company that owns a large number of the seed rights to things like cotton. And they've drastically increased the price of cotton seed. And you can't reclaim your seed at the end of the season. So we we already have this, this situation where our farmers here in the southeast are kind of being bled by by um large basically intellectual property corporations and that are owned by by foreigners and by um um by high interest rate loans and then something like this happens and it's it's like it a boot on their neck like they they were already struggling because of a, a set of factors that probably shouldn't have existed in the first place and then you you take the one thing that's the buffer away which is their crop for the season and it, it really puts people in a bad situation yeah that's it's all it's all crazy stuff um something i, I did want to ask as we start to to wrap things up here um, remind everyone again of the, the first screening date and then, um, any type of social media that you guys have so the listeners can follow you. So our first screening, um, we're doing a pre-screening, which is a, a cut of the film that may change depending on audience reaction. Um, but we're doing that on September 15th. Uh, 1 p.m. Suds and Cinema at Fort Walton Beach. Um, we'd love to get your your feedback, uh, what your thoughts are on the film. Uh, we're also using it as a fundraiser. And um, we are on Facebook under Blue Tarps. Um, if you type in Blue Tarps Hurricane Michael, that's the best way to um, keep track of where we're going to be screening things next. And um, hopefully we're, we're trying to negotiate some screenings in Panama City and Mariana and Pensacola coming up. Um and we'll be posting updates there. Awesome. So one last question that I had for you guys, because you both have been you know, filmmakers for a few years now, and especially with doing a documentary on this scale, what's one piece of advice you could give to someone who's, whether they're an aspiring documentary filmmaker or filmmaker in general, uh, what's one piece of advice you would give? Austin, you want to start this one? <clears throat> uh, uh, I guess one thing, one battle we were constantly fighting is um, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But my whole thing, I kept on saying this. I think she hated. I always says like, "Hey, how do you know Finn? One bite at a time, right?" And even when we were shooting, you know, it was the alive animals we developed. It uh, a lot of times filmmakers, and I've always kind of said this. A lot of times filmmakers, you know, with a lot of issues, you know, you you try to like pull the cart before the horse. You you want to make sure everything's right. Everything's ready. You know, you want to have a plan, all this kind of thing. And you do have a plan, but the idea is like, it's always going to change. It's always going to be a live wire act. It's always going to be hot science. You know what I mean? So just go out there and start doing it. You know, I mean, we started like literally, you know, after we drove through, you know, that first time after doing the uh, documentary on John Gorey, we drive through the area. It's like, we should do something, you know, this is, this is 
like nuts, you know, it just started just like an interest thing. Right. And then put a few emails out there. And I said, you know, a couple weeks later, we're over there in Panama city. We interviewed three people. And then that night we set interviews next week for like 10 more people and more people and more people. And like, it just kept going and going and going. And there's a lot more we still wanted to do. And that's another thing too, when it comes to, uh, if you're, if you want to be a filmmaker and you want to make a plan, you can make an A plus plan really do because you're not going to complete it. You're not going to get that plan. But if you shoot for the stars like that, if you shoot for that A plus plan, whatever you do come up with, it's still great, great stuff. You know what I mean? So uh, I feel like that, that was definitely a good thing too. And also, um, us working together, we just work really well together. Uh, you know, just we've done it a few times and we've done a few documentaries, a few pieces of content all the time. Just, you know, find people you can sync with that you can actually work well with. And it just, yeah. And I was also working on kind of what I mentioned too. You know, when you think like what your first big movie is going to be, you're like when you're making a movie, what is it going to turn out? You have an idea like in your head, you know, in the early days, like, oh, it's going to be this. And I'm like, I had no idea I'd ever make a documentary on Hurricane Michael or a hurricane. That was never something I'd ever thought was ever going to happen. And like, yeah, that was kind of the fun challenge of it. Like, and I, it, it, you watch it, it's, it's really, I, I feel confident. I feel good about it. And, but it's not something, oh, Austin and Carrie made that. You wouldn't really know if you watched it. It's like, it was really an objective exercise in trying to do something. Cause, you know, we filmed, a story about a national disaster. We filmed victims of this disaster. If you kind of, there's a responsibility there to do right. You know what I mean? There's a responsibility there to make something that's compelling, that has a message, that is, you know, that has something to say. And that was really kind of like, you know, that was kind of like driving force for me at least. Yeah. Um, uh, Austin and I keep talking about how we're, we're kind of growing up as people and as filmmakers when we first started out we were you know we were making a lot of I guess immature content a lot of you know uh, I'm trying to be nice about it but like you know crude humor sketch comedy stuff slapstick and I think as we've gotten older and matured our work is starting to mature and one of the things that's kind of been important to me to learn is that the work that I've made that I actually feel like people enjoy watching are things that I feel in my heart really matter. Like they're saying something like even the things I've made that are comedy um, that still feel watchable and relevant to me um, have something intrinsically about the nature of being human or about something going on in the world that um, I think is important or that needs to change. And I think that an awful lot of my, my fellow filmmakers on the indie level are just trying to make movies to make movies. And, you know, when I first started making movies, I didn't want to be a filmmaker. I had something that I wanted to say and I just found that movies were a good way to say it. Um, I, I started making movies as a teenager because I was interested in history and science. And then and I was a very quiet person and I felt like I could communicate better through film than I could through other mediums. But I got to film school and I was told that, you know, documentary is not a good path for making a living. And I started doing the narrative thing. And I basically started trying to make movies to make movies like oh, a lot of people do. And it kind of lost its soul at a certain point, And I almost quit. 
And I think that in the last, I'd say, year and a half, I've kind of rediscovered, you know, after coming very close to just quitting, um, I've kind of rediscovered why I wanted to make movies in the first place. And it's, it's because I have things that I think matter in my life. So I would say if you're going to make a movie, don't make a movie just to make a movie do it because there's something about it that you find so fascinating or that people need to hear. Um, the other thing I would say for people that are just starting out, um, make really short films, like whether it's documentary or, or narrative, um, start with things that are two or three minutes because one of the things in this film that I noticed that Austin and I were doing is we were basically editing things together, you know, three minute segments at a time. If we had tried to attack the editing of this or even the filming of this as an overall one hour film, we would have never gotten it done. And I see a lot of people never finish the films that they start. And, you know, if you can do 23 minute films, um, individually and you learn how to like compartmentalize like the individual stories when you go to make something bigger and longer like what we just did you'll be able to find breaks in the story where you're almost telling many stories because each scene is almost like its own story um and you'll be able to actually finish if you just take it as a whole um and you're looking at, and I think this is probably the same for a two hour film. I've never directed longer than this, but for, for anything really over a 10 minute film, you have to break it into pieces. And if you start with those, those small stories, you'll already have the building blocks to build those pieces. And then you just kind of have to put them together. Yeah. No, make, make well, things with sorry. a purpose. No, no, that's good. That's very good advice. No, make something with a purpose and don't just do it, you know, for the sake of doing it. No, I, I like that. But guys, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and share your story about your documentary. This was great. And I, I look very much forward to, to seeing the screening uh, in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks again to Carrie and Austin for that really powerful and really awesome interview. I'm really excited to see the documentary in just a couple of weeks. Again, as a reminder, the pre-screening of Blue Tarps is going to be at the Suds and Cinema in Fort Walton Beach. The address is 174 Highway 98, and that's going to be on Sunday, September 15th at 1 p.m. And some really exciting news that I actually just found out about today. There's going to be a screening at Sam's Fun City the night before, uh, September 14th at 7 p.m. That's going to include not one, not two, but three films. The premiere of Nick Smith's film, The Verso Verdict, my film, The Parker Syndrome, and my friend Steve Wise's film, Survey, which I worked on a couple of years ago. So we're going to be doing screenings for all three of those films. It's going to be at Sam's Fun City on September 14th at 7 p.m. The address is 6709 Pensacola Boulevard, and admission is free. You can't beat that. It's my favorite four-letter word. It's going to be a really exciting weekend uh, next weekend for film in Pensacola and the Gulf Coast area with the triple header screening on the 14th and then the pre-screening of Blue Tarps 
on the 15th. And as far as next week's show goes, I will be joined with actor, writer, and producer Sam Engrafia, who has been in the film industry for many, many years. He comes on the show to tell his story of what made him want to get into the acting business, as well as transitioning from acting to writing and producing. So he's done a lot in the business, and he's got a really fantastic story, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. But until then, you can check out past episodes of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And of course, thank you to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night drive Through" and Light and Jazzy can be found on their album Greetings from the Space Van, which you can find on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. They should have an EP coming out within the next couple of months. I will definitely have a new song uh, once that comes out, and I'll keep everyone posted on that as well. But that's going to do it for this week's show. It's great to be back. Thank you again to Carrie and Austin, and be sure to come back next week for my conversation with Sam Engrafia. This has been Derek Diamond with the Derek Diamond Experience, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. <laughs> <laughs>